The battle against anxiety is each Christian's daily assignment. Paul's command to the Philippians in his epistle to them was that they should be anxious for nothing. This epistle was written to the believers in Rome, the capital of the empire, the seat of the Caesars. And for them, the struggles of daily life were their lot, and those struggles combined with the hostility of people around them to provoke concern about the future. In our text, Paul underscored the weapon that overcomes all those concerns. To use Bunyan's expression in the Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian's way in this world is not uncertainty, panic, or desperation. It is the way of comfort, security, and assurance. The believer's life rests on the power of the God of heaven. And that power is always available. It will never leave you disappointed. Lying at the very heart of this assurance as we find in our text, is the love of God. I'll have more to say about that a little later. But once you know the reality of the love of God, as it appeared vividly on Calvary's cross, then your life shines with the light of gospel assurance. Nothing compares to a Christian who is aglow with the assurance that all is well in the soul. The hymn writer gave expression to that very thought, it is well with my soul. Paul's message to the Romans was that every believer should live by faith in Christ. In our text tonight, the Apostle Paul stressed the fundamental matter of Christian confidence. And I want to speak to you upon that theme this evening. Christian confidence. Paul's message to the Romans, and again let us remember their surroundings, their environment, was not an easy life for people who lived in Rome at any event. And it was certainly not an easy life for Christians living in Rome. His message to them was that there was every reason for them to live as happy people in this world, in spite of their circumstances. The hope of which this text speaks, if we went back into verses 3 and 4, we would find it is the fruit of tribulations. Tribulation works patience. Patience works experience. 
Experience works hope. The things that threaten to cause us dismay then, tribulations. The things that threaten to cause us depression. Paul said are the things that work to produce patience, maturity, and hope. So that believers are not up and down. They learn how to interpret all of the events around them and all of the events that affect them in their own lives. They learn to interpret those things in the context of God's love for them. But the question is, how do you do it? How do you live in contentment when there are such trying circumstances? when things in the world seem to be falling apart, when leaders of governments commit themselves to follow a course of action that is perverse, how can you be content when everything about you is saying to be anxious? How do you continue to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? The answer is you have to go back to the divine power in your life. You have to see again the truth of the love of God for you. And that the love of God has settled upon you from eternity. These are concepts that we don't often recall. So the truth of which we're speaking here is not speculation. We don't have to wonder whether we can count on what we find in the Bible. This text presents to us an objective truth. Christian confidence is an objective truth. But that truth appears in your experience. Here's the translation point, and here's where things go awry. Only those who have come to Christ by faith enter the experience of this text. So those, as so many do, who speak of the love of God without having first made peace with the justice of God, as we read at the beginning of the chapter, live in a delusion. A lot of people comfort themselves, well, God loves everybody. That means God loves me, so it doesn't matter what I do. The love of God is for me. Those people will hear the words of doom at the last day. Depart from me. I never knew you. So believers in Christ, observe your confidence tonight. In our text, there are three aspects of that confidence for us to observe. First of all, the reward of hope. Paul began our text with the affirmation of Christian hope. Hope maketh not ashamed. Here is the hope that flows from faith. You may remember 
The famous words in 1 Corinthians 13, Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is charity. But that doesn't minimize the importance of hope. Hope in a scriptural setting is more than a wish. We use the word hope in a different way. We may say, I hope it doesn't rain on our outdoor event. Now, Kelsey and Stephen, they didn't have too much to worry about on that score. They were probably more worried about how hot it was going to be. But Kara and Isaac got married at a time of the year when rain is possible. So we may say, I hope it doesn't rain on our outdoor event without any certainty about whether it will. The hope of which Paul speaks is not that. It is more substantial. It is something on which you lean. Paul wrote about hope in the context of the illustration we were just using as one who can say it definitely will not rain on that day and that place and that time. That is how we understand what this hope is. So the hope of which Paul wrote is blessed assurance. We considered that in verse 2, two weeks ago at the Lord's table. It's the knowledge that Jesus is yours and that you are his. It's the knowledge as we find in Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. That's hope. So here is the objective truth that produces what I call subjective joy. Here is the contact point between the objective truth and the experience of that truth in your life. The Christian life has an impact on the emotions. It ought to be a life of contentment and peace, not stoic resignation. A lot of people think that Christianity is like stoicism. That's not what Christianity is. But Christianity is not either the expression of delusion. It's the life of contentment. The knowledge that your sins are really forgiven. The knowledge that you have the pardon of God. That you are on the road to heaven that you cannot miss getting to heaven, that brings you the sense of contentment. So then in the face of all the reversals, the adversity of life, you come back to that. And I, I dare say, here was the truth that Dr. Allison rested on in the last three years as he struggled against the issues with his health, he knew 
that his sins were forgiven. He knew that he had the pardon of God. He knew that he was on the road to heaven. The hope of which our text speaks produces a reward. The reward of hope, I call it. The basis of this hope is not something that you can invent. It doesn't lie in yourself. It doesn't lie in your activity. Some people say, well, I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, do certain things. Maybe I'll do something uh, in service to the church, and that will make me feel better about things and build up my hope. It has nothing to do with your own activity. Your hope lies in God's work. Let us turn to the Old Testament And to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. Verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God... Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. He that trusteth in that stone shall not make haste, shall not be ashamed, shall not be confounded. Now, while we have just been reading that text, let us also look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. And here is a direct quotation from Isaiah 28. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. That is, we read in Isaiah, he will not make haste. The sense of the expression is the same. He shall not be confounded. And we read in verse 7, the identity of this stone. Unto you, therefore, which believe, He is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Peter meant to identify the passage in Isaiah 28 with Jesus Christ. He is the precious cornerstone. He is the tribe and proved foundation. So your hope as a believer is in the person and work of Christ. These truths are important. They must always be before us. It was the expression of Paul on the eve of his martyrdom. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Famous words. 
A hymn has been written about them. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That is, I'm not confounded. I am not making haste. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What was Paul saying? Here he was. In chapter 4 saying the time of his departure was at hand. Where was his hope? Where was his confidence? As he contemplated death, his hope was in the person of Christ. I know whom I have believed. So he depended upon Christ and on what Christ has done. The foundation of your hope then, of your confidence, if you will, is the person and work of Christ. And those truths are historic truths. The hope of which Paul wrote to the Romans steadies your soul in all of life. The soul, as the hymn writer said, which upon Jesus has leaned for repose, God will not, he will not desert to his foes. So the character of the hope of which Paul wrote is an anchor for your soul. Let us turn to the epistle to the Hebrews and to chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice the emphasis that that hope that is set before us is an anchor of the soul. And there's a reference to the world with which Paul was very familiar, the world of the maritime trade. Ships, boats. When a ship would stop at a certain point, it needed to take measures to prevent the ship from drifting away somewhere else. So they would throw anchors out that were so heavy that they could not be dislodged. So we read in Hebrews that this hope is an anchor for the soul. That's why I say it's more than just a wish that somehow things will work out. You will not find disappointment in this hope. That is, let me put it in this way, you will never suffer shame 
because you have trusted in Christ. You will never come to say, I wish I hadn't given my life to that. You will never be confounded. The day is coming when faith shall become sight. For Dr. Allison, it came when he died, when he left this world, when he left his body and went immediately, as the scriptures teach us, into the presence of Christ. But there is a day coming, a final day coming, when for every one of God's people, faith will become sight. Those who have put their hope and their trust in Christ will on that day shine as the stars of the heaven. And you can read of that day in the epistle to the Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship, that is, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That transformation is the hope. It's the destination of the Lord's people. And the argument in Romans 5 in verse 8 is that such a prospect is as certain as if it happened yesterday. That's how sure we can be about it. At that day, you will not have any regret. You will not be sorry. And the reason you will not be sorry is the second point of our text this evening, the pervasiveness of love. Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So what is the cause of the hope that will not make you ashamed? It's the love of God. The love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. What a wonderful thought. The hope is not in our hearts in some small way. It is shed abroad. It is poured out. In the Acts of the Apostles, from the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, Verse 17, Peter preaching on that day. Said to the people, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. This pouring out of the Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost, is the same image as we have in our text, the pouring out 
of the love of God. This love is shed abroad, Paul said, in our hearts. Think of the grace of that statement in our hearts that were by nature, by all that we inherited from our first father Adam, that were by nature the seat of enmity against God. That is what our hearts were before God's intervention. They were at war against God. Our hearts were not subject to the law of God. We read of that in Romans chapter 8. Neither indeed could be. Our hearts were as black as sin could make them. Our hearts harbored no desire for God or for his law. That is the scene where the love of God is shed abroad. The love of God, we may say, is the greatest monument to divine sovereignty that you can find. Let us turn to the Old Testament once again, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. That is, Moses was saying, the Lord's love is not the response of God to something about you. You were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. Now remember years ago, Having someone pointed out that the Lord loved you because he loved you. That's all we can say about it. He set his love upon you. Why? We don't know. Nothing to do with us, but for his own purpose. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Here is the monument of divine sovereignty. The Lord set his love upon you because he set his love upon you. That is all we can say. So this love is shed abroad in our hearts. That is, it overflows every boundary. There's no area of our lives that the love of God does not touch it is overwhelming it sweeps all before it it permeates everything it conquers our rebellion it conforms us who were born in sin to the image of Christ we don't know exactly what we shall be we can have some imagination, but I, I say to you again, as I've said many times, all that we can imagine is going to be nothing compared to the reality. We don't know what we shall be, but we know one thing. 
that when we see him, we shall be like him. The pervasiveness of love. And now we come to the third aspect of Christian confidence. The life of the Spirit. The text tells us, Hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. How do you have this confidence? How does it happen? It happens by the operation of a divine person. By the Holy Ghost. By the Holy Spirit. So the application of this love of God of which we have read is the work of the same Spirit who wrote all the words of the Bible. And the church of Jesus Christ is the particular realm of the operation of the Spirit of God. The apostle wrote elsewhere in the New Testament, Ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then resides. He dwells in the hearts of God's people. He sanctifies them. That is, He makes them holy. He purges them of sin. And he leads them. We turn over a page to chapter 8 or two pages to chapter 8. And to verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself, or himself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The Holy Spirit is the person who does this work in your heart, who gives you hope, gives you that confidence upon which you lean. He is the one then who guarantees that you will never be ashamed, that you will never have devoted your life to following Christ to find out it was all a delusion. He is as we read elsewhere, the earnest against the day of inheritance. Let us turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And to verse 6. And because ye are sons, notice how Paul put it there, Because ye are sons. Here's a fact. Here's evidence. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You call God your father because God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And it is the testimony 
of the Holy Spirit that Christ will redeem the purchased possession at the last day. He is, as we read elsewhere, the earnest of the inheritance, the assurance. When you go into a real estate transaction, if you are serious about it, the person who has the property that you want wants some evidence of your serious intention. So what do you have to do? You have to put up what is called earnest money, a pledge that you're going to conclude the transaction. And in some cases, if you don't, you lose that money. The Holy Spirit is Christ's earnest, the earnest of our inheritance And that is the guarantee that Christ will not fail in anything he has committed himself to do for his people. He will redeem the purchased possession at the last day. These things go together, Paul said to the Romans, to make this hope, this confidence, that does not make you ashamed. People will not mock you because somehow you got it wrong. This is the hope that you have as believers in Christ. So the real challenge from the scriptures tonight is, do you have that confidence? Has the reality of all that goes on in the world around you made your focus shift? Now you're looking at what people are doing. Paul is saying, as he said to the Romans, come back to the foundational truth. Hope maketh not ashamed. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. So live in the light of that reality. And when cares, fretfulness, Rise up before you. May God give you the grace to say, no, wait a minute. In Romans 5 and verse 5, we read those words, Hope maketh not ashamed. I trust that God will encourage you through his word tonight. That he will indeed enable you to live in that Christian contentment. That can face all the challenges of life around us and still say, I am leaning upon what Christ has done and upon who Christ is.